I made a really nifty blowgun. And, uh, I mean, this thing didn't shoot as far as this new one I have, but it's, you know, it's pretty, it was pretty good. Back then, I thought it was really good. And uh, I made the mistake of taking it to school to show my friends. And, you know, I showed them how it worked, and I made the mistake. I don't know if I should tell you this or not. <laughs> I made the mistake of this... One gal got me really mad, and she was walking away, and I... You didn't hear what I did yet. You're already saying, oh, like I did something wrong. I did. I did something wrong. I shot it at her. And I got kicked out of school for it. What seemed like, at first, innocent fun turned to rebellious behavior, and I was dealt with very firmly for my rebellious behavior. There were consequences to pay. There were times I was rebellious at home. There were always consequences to pay. Later on in life, when I was a teenager, I did some things that were pretty raspy that got me put in jail for a while. There were consequences to pay. We read about in this chapter a man by the name of Korah who was able, being a Levite and being a man of status in Israel, was able to get about 250 others on his side to rebel against Moses. Why? Well, because he wasn't satisfied being just a Levite. He wanted the priesthood as well. And he assembles with these 250 guys and he rebels against Moses. Now, what's interesting is that there's not really a detailed account of the years of wandering in the wilderness. But there are isolated incidents that are mentioned. And four of them are mentioned in chapters 16 through 19. Chapter 16 is the incident of the rebellion. Chapter 17 is the incident of the rod of Aaron budding. Chapter 18 is the incident where God confirms the priesthood so that everybody will know it's Aaron and his family. And finally, chapter 19 is the story of the red heifer for cleansing. But all of them substantiate the priesthood among the family of Aaron. These four chapters sort of form a block. You see, God chooses all of us to serve him. If you're a Christian tonight, you have an area of service. You're not exempt. God has given you a gift or a few gifts, and he has given you talents, and he requires that you use them. But not all of us have the same capacity of service. Just as you've been given different gifts, there's different areas to use those gifts. We don't all have the same capacity. Now, Korah thought, well, if Aaron can do it, I can do it. But it was actually a rebellion. Chapter 16 opens up with the murmuring of the children of Israel. Uh, it's their fifth murmuring. It closes with their sixth murmuring. And I've mentioned it before. It is true. Once you start to complain, it's sometimes a faucet that continually drips. It's hard to shut it off. There are some people that I know that every time I talk to them, there's a complaint. Daniel Webster had an interesting method of meeting people. He met so many people, he couldn't keep track of them. But he wanted them to feel like he was really interested in them personally. 
So when they would come up to him, he would always ask them this question. He would say, hey, how's that old complaint that you talked about? And they would start going in like to a dog. Oh, hey, I'm glad you remembered. And they just kind of picked it up from there. Knowing human nature, he could just bet that there was something that they had a gripe about or a complaint about. And I found that when people are on a complaining road, it's just like, you know, it's hard to get out of their way. Cora was like that. Ah, uh, well, he's like that temporarily. God has a solution here that we're about to see. I was reading about the settlements of the West in the early days, pioneers that were going across the country from east to west. Some of the pioneers were forging the Oregon Trail. It was a very difficult going for them. Uh, there was a shortage of water, a shortage of grass. The wagons had broken down. Uh, it was searing heat. And uh, their journey was delayed, and so they appointed an evening where they would sit around a campfire and air out their complaints. You know, they started getting on each other's nerves. The joy had left the camp, and so they were going to air out their complaints. They all got together, and before they had a chance to complain, one of them said, Now, before we uh, talk about our complaints, I think we should pause and have a word of prayer and thank God that up to this point there's been no loss of life. We've had minimal trouble from the Indians, and God has given us enough strength to go on. And so he led them all in a word of prayer. Guess what? After they prayed, there was strange silence in the camp. People realized as we often do when we start giving thanks to God, that our murmuring is changed. And we see it is not really that significant in light of all that God has done. Bless the Lord, O my soul, David said, and forget not all of His benefits. When we start forgetting His benefits and we start zeroing in on what we don't have rather than what we do have, the ship is sunk. We swim or we sink in that sea of complaining. Imagine waking up every morning being Moses to complaining. You know, you think about it. This is the fifth and sixth complaint. He's already heard it from his family, Aaron and Miriam. He's hearing it from the leaders. He's about to hear it from the people. He's already heard it from the people. Imagine waking up Every morning is Moses going, okay, here it goes. Lord, give me the strength. I'm going to have to do it again. And now these 250 Oscar the Grouches are facing him. Verse 23, so the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the congregation saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Now God is warning him, get away from their tents. You can just feel the tension in the air. Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all of their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram came and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all of the works, all of these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally, like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. 
But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that belong to them and they go down alive into the pit, a pit in the earth, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now one might think at this point, Korah would have put up his hands and said, uh, time out. Okay, I repent. I'm sorry. I take it all back. Please have mercy on me. Because he's seen Moses. He no doubt remembers when Moses put up his rod over the Red Sea and it opened up. He has seen how God has used him in the past. Hearing these words from Moses would be enough to stop any of us dead in our tracks. But you know, you can be so stubborn... That even with impending judgment, it's just not enough. Remember Jonah? I'm always fascinated by it. I think I brought it up Thursday or last Sunday night. Here's Jonah, a wayward prophet. He's on a boat going away from the presence of the Lord. God sends a storm on the sea. The boat is rocked. It's about to sink. All the sailors cry out to their gods, have mercy on us. It doesn't work. And Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. I believe in the God of Israel. And I've disobeyed him. I'm fleeing from his presence. And that's why you're having all of this trouble. And then he says something that just blows my mind. He says, throw me overboard. What a stubborn dude. I mean, if there's a storm because you're rebellious, what's the solution? Stop being a rebel. Humble yourself. He goes, no, throw me overboard. He would rather drown than obey. So they toss him overboard. Then God sends a great fish to swallow him. And for three days and three nights, by the way, I believe it to be literal, even as Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights. I know it's tough to swallow for some, but I believe it. But there's Jonah down in the mouth. Think of the fish stories he told when he got home. You should have seen the one that got away. But there he is. And it says, on the third day, on the third day, he starts crying out to God. Why on the third day? Jonah, why not the first day? Why not the first second? Why so stubborn that you'd wait for three days? with the stomach acid and the seaweed wrapped around your head before you cry out. I would think that if God speaks to Moses and Moses speaks to the children of Israel and God says, all right, or Moses says, all right, if you die naturally, fine. But if the earth opens up and swallows you, then we know that the Lord has spoken. Of course, it'll be too late for you. You won't have a chance. You think he'd stop, but he didn't. That is human nature, by the way. We are by nature stubborn. I see it all the time in relationships when I talk to husbands and wives. Well, if he'd only... Well, the reason I do that is because you and if you'd only... And Hey, why didn't just someone say, Okay, I'm sorry, it's my fault. How can I fix this? In the book of Revelation, during the tribulation period, it says the earth, even though God judges it with plague after plague after plague, it says they did not repent of their wickedness. It came to pass, verse 31, 
As he finished speaking, all of these words that the ground split apart under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Now here you have the punishment fitting the crime. They sought to divide the camp of Israel. That's what they were trying to do, create a division. We're called by God to get on our side. And they managed to create it. They were divisive. And so God separated them, divided them from the rest of Israel. Then he divided the earth to swallow them up. Galatians tells us, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now I have watched on a few occasions where God is able to handle himself and handle his own. God has all sorts of interesting ways to show that he's in charge. When I was in the Philippines a few years ago, I went down to a church and I spoke for a week, a week seminar to ministers, how to study the Bible, how to teach it. And the pastor relayed to me how that his church had been under constant threat by the NPA, the New People's Army, a rebel group down in that area who was trying to assume control. They had managed to abscond with money and with arms, and uh, they were taking over certain parts of the Philippines, a terrorist group. One Sunday morning, jeeps pulled up, The men got out from the NPA, surrounded the church, walked into the church building, and held automatic weapons on the congregation and said, Now we'll be back next week. And next week we want your offering. We want this week's offering and next week's offering. And if you don't, we're going to come in just like we did today, but we're going to pull the trigger. We're going to kill you. They left. Suddenly the church was in a panic. What do we do? What would you do? All sorts of reasonings were brought up. Well, maybe we should leave. Maybe this is a sign that God wants us to move on. After all, we have children. We shouldn't place them in jeopardy. And they went back and forth. They all had good reasons for it. But the pastor said, no, I feel God has called us here. And we're not going to back down. Even if we get killed, we'll get killed doing God's work. But we're not going to hand over the money. Next Sunday came. I'm sure it was a slow week. When it came, there they were gathered in the church. He didn't tell me how many came that Sunday. But he did say that he waited and they had church and no one came. They let church out. No one came. It wasn't, I think, till the next day when they heard what had happened that while these jeeps were on their way, I don't exactly know what happened. Either they hit a landmine or something, but the jeep was overturned and they were killed. I thought, what a great story of how God can. Not always does because he has his own purposes, but how God can miraculously intervene and preserve his people. When you go to the mission field like that, you hear those kinds of stories. They're exciting. Oh, here's Moses. How do I handle this guy? God says, don't worry about it. I got it covered. Just go give him this message. Showdown at the OK Corral out in the wilderness. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. 
Now, Korah was not only a complainer, but I think I would call him a poser. That is, he saw what Moses was, and he saw what Aaron was, and that's what he wanted to be. He had his own censor, just like the priest had. He wanted those clothes. He wanted that admiration. And so he was posing as if he was a priest. Not only did he complain, he was a poser. Now, when I lived in California, and Danny will be able to relate to this, there were surfers and there were posers. There were guys who actually surfed. They owned boards and they did it. But there were other guys who bought all the clothes and put the stickers on the cars, but they didn't do it. They were posers. And Coro was a poser. He wanted to act like he was really one of these guys, but he was not. One time on the Merv Griffin show, they had these bodybuilders on. It was one afternoon, and Merv was interviewing these bodybuilders. You know, they kind of have muscle on top of muscle. They, there's muscles. I mean, I never thought even existed. But they're highly developed, no doubt with the help of steroids and other things. But there they are, just these Hans and Franz type of guys. And, and uh, Merv, Merv Griffin asked them the classic question. He said, let me ask you the obvious question. What do you use all these muscles for? You know what the answer was? This is how he answered it. One guy stood up and flexed his muscle like this. You know, just arms. And everybody, ooh, ah. And, and Merv said, no, no, you don't understand me. What do you use the muscles for? And the guy stood up again and started flexing. And by this time, he was a little perturbed. He said, I don't think you understand me. Read my lips. What do you do with the, what do you use them for? And again, his answer was a flex. You know, I'll pump you up. He didn't use them for anything except for show. That was the whole point. He just wanted to enter a contest and win the contest. Now, in the body of Christ, there are certain places that to some are popular because that position places you in front of people. And some people see others in that position. They're attracted to that position, not because they're called by God, but they want the adulation. They want the plaudence of men. They want the attention. And some people will do almost anything for attention. Put them in a group and they'll want to rise to the top and get all the attention and do all of the, be the center of attention. There are places in the body of Christ where you can be visible. And I think that some people enter the ministry for the wrong reasons. Again, not because it's a, a, a pull or a push from God, but they want to be noticed. I think there are some in the ministry who do it to fulfill a personal psychological need rather than because they're called by God. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah said, you know, there's a lot of prophets running around saying, the Lord says, the Lord says, but you know what? I never called them. And therefore, they will not profit this people any good. Now, all of us have areas where we're called to serve in the body of Christ. But we need to know what God has called us to do, not just presume upon what God has called us to do. In the book of Hebrews concerning the priesthood, the writer says concerning the priesthood, no one takes this office to himself. It's not like, when I grow up, I want to be a fireman. When I grow up, I want to be a priest out in the tabernacle. When I grow up, I want to be a preacher. It has to be a calling from God. And again, I think some people just want either attention or they want power. And if you want either of them, the ministry is not for you. Because you're to be a servant, not exercise some strong-arm tactic or shove your weight around. When I, in the 70s, I used to play in a Christian band, and we'd travel around California. Uh, Maranatha groups, we called them. 
And um, we went to this one little town. They invited us to come and play at their church. And um, we set up. And um, the youth pastor, either that or the pastor, I don't know which. But he belonged to the shepherding movement. The shepherding movement is a movement that came up in the 70s where um, basically you have a personal shepherd. You can't do anything unless you consult the personal shepherd. You tithe personally to him. You ask him if you want to buy a television, if he approves of it. Uh, If you want to get married, he has to approve of your marriage and the one you get married to. And it's a very tight, legalistic, controlled system. We did this church and they were into the shepherding movement. So we set up and... We started playing the songs. The guy said, oh, that's too loud. So we, we toned down. And then he said, still too loud. And they said, oh, so we toned it way down. Finally, he said, those drums are... And this guy wasn't a musician. He said, the drums are too loud. So my drummer plays with brushes. He says, that's still too loud. And besides that, I don't like that song. I think he should do another. So he started, you know, doing this, that. So finally, we said, you know, uh, we're trying to do everything we can to accommodate you and minister to your flock. But it's very difficult. Now... All we did is, is talk gingerly to him that way. He got up to us, stood on a chair so that he'd be... T- he was a short guy. And he, he wanted to stand on a chair so that he would be... You know, he had a short man's complex. And there he stands on a chair and he folds his arms and he looks down at us like this. I'm in charge here. I'm God's anointed. You don't go against God's anointed. We said, well, you're right. We're out of here. And we're not going to play here tonight. He said, wait a minute. We called Costa Mesa and they sent you down to us. You are going to play tonight. He says, no, we're not. Because if somebody comes and gets saved, they're going to have to go to your church. God forbid that would happen. So we left and we set up in the park. The city gave us electricity. We played openly in the park. We did open air evangelism. A lot of kids got saved. It was a great, great time, great opportunity. But we didn't want to give that power-hungry guy that opportunity. All right, back to the text, verse 34. Then all of Israel who were around them fled at their cry. I would too. For they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came down from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. All the other posers were put out of business. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy. Scatter the fire some distance away. The censers of these men who sinned against their own souls, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, because they presented them before the Lord. Therefore they are holy. They shall be assigned to the children of Israel. So Eleazar, the priest, took the bronze censers, which those who were burned up had presented, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar, to be a memorial to the children of Israel, that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might not become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured, Hello. Come on. I mean... They just had a lesson. Notice this. So they murmured against Moses and Aaron saying, You've killed the people of the Lord. 
Now I can relate to this. Not that I kill the people of the Lord. (laughs) But I can relate to being in Moses' position. Moses is not God. God did it. But Moses is a representative of God. God is invisible to them. Moses is the closest visible representation. They have a beef against God, and so they come to Moses with it. You kill the representatives, or you kill the people of God. Sometimes people will come to me, and they're very angry. It seems like they're angry at me. I have to realize not to take it personally. Well, why did God, or why would God? You know what? I, I get questions like that. Why would God? I'm not God. I don't feel qualified to answer that. I don't feel qualified to defend him. I don't think he needs my defense. I think it would be a shallow one anyway. How could a God of love and why? Hey, ask God. But people will get angry as they got angry with Moses. Or I've heard people say, they come up to me, they're just living. I heard you say today that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Yes, right. How can you say that? Actually, I didn't say that. I quoted what Jesus said and what Paul said and what the Bible says. I didn't write the book. These aren't my rules. It's not a game that I have arbitrarily decided to make my own self-made rules. This is what God said. This is what Jesus said. How do you respond to what Jesus said? What do you think about Jesus? Well, how can you say, I didn't. But he said. Yet people get angry at the messenger. They're angry at Moses. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered together against Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered him and the glory of the Lord appeared. Now, we mentioned this last week. When the glory of God appears, it's not always a happy day. In fact, we see Him of late appearing more in judgment than for guidance. And again, remember, Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. God basically said, no, you don't, Moses. You'd die if you did. God shows up. But He shows up in judgment. They're complaining, just like Korah complained in a rebellion. Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. And it says they fell on their faces. I've got to admit, I've read this many times. I've tried to put myself in their place. I might have said, Yeah, finally. I've been waiting for you to get around to doing this, because these people bug me. But instead, Moses is meek, he's humble, he's an intercessor. He falls on his face. Not literally, don't picture him going, but he's in in homage and worship and prayer. Moses said to Aaron, take a censer, put fire in it from the altar, put incense in it. Take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people, so he put incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and so the plague was stopped. 
Now, those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, for the plague had stopped. Moses criticized time and time again while doing the work of God. His family did it. The leaders did it. Now here all the children of Israel did it. Now, all of us get criticized for something. It's a part of life. It comes with the territory. In fact, let me just warn you. If you want to serve God... The more public you become, you are open to more scrutiny. That just stands to reason. And thus you are open to more criticism. I remember the first Sunday morning we ever had church. There were criticisms. Because we did it a certain way. The first two weeks, one person came and said, I can't fellowship at this church anymore. You guys don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I said, we don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Sure we do. Well, we didn't see any exercise. I said... Did you hear the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation? Did you see the gift of helps, the gift of administration? But that guy setting up the PA? He goes, no, we don't mean that. I said, I know what you mean. What you meant is nobody spoke in tongues and prophesied. Yeah, right. The next week, somebody said, well, it was nice service, but we can't fellowship here. It's too Pentecostal. You've got to learn to live with it. I've learned from that. At first it kind of took me off guard. I've learned to develop a thick skin. And some of them are even humorous. Some are tragic, but some are just funny. Today there was somebody passing out, and I tucked it away, flyers on the cars. It says, have you accepted Christ or said the sinner's prayer to be saved? If so... Did you know that this cannot be found anywhere in the Bible? The apostles of Jesus Christ never taught this is the salvation message. Are you willing to risk your eternity on the sayings and philosophies of men? That would be me, according to this flyer. Find out what the scriptures really teach about believing only on the Lord Jesus Christ through the dynamic Bible study of the keys of the kingdom. And then non-denominational, foundational, relevant, and the church name is given. But... What got me is at the bottom of this flyer, you know, it, basically it's a flyer talking against our carnality. Yet at the bottom it says, register for a free drawing, you may win $100 cash. <laughs> so I registered. No, I didn't. I'm just kidding. It comes with the territory. A couple weeks ago, I was picketed by somebody out front. You know what? I don't care. I don't. It doesn't, it doesn't, it didn't bother me. I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and there was a Billy Graham crusade. Billy gets this all the time, but there's people, you know, picketing Billy for something, and they were handing out flyers like this, saying, Billy Graham is a false prophet. He doesn't preach the real gospel of repentance. And uh, uh, so Greg, I was with Greg Laurie. We were out in front of this huge stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. And we said, what do you mean he doesn't preach repentance? Did you hear his message tonight? Five times he told everybody there that they must repent of their sins and turn to Christ. He goes, well, I didn't hear the message. 
I said, of course you didn't. You're out here passing out these dumb flyers. <laughs> well, it's not the true gospel. Wait, did you hear it? No. Well, how do you know it's not the true gospel? And he wouldn't, you know, give a good answer. And he was just, you know, stone-faced. And so Greg did something classic. I think he always wanted to do this. He said, so are these like free? These are free flyers? Are you just passing them out? He goes, yes. So he goes, good. And he grabbed the whole stack. And he ran down the street till the guy couldn't see him and trashed them all in the trash can. I thought, yes. And I heard the guy yelling after Greg. That's not love, brother. And I yelled after Greg, That is love, brother. You're loving the rest of the people that would be poisoned by this maniac. It's true love. Keep at it. And Greg afterwards said, You know, I kind of felt bad, but I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> they came to Jesus and they said, He's beside himself. That, that is, he's nuts. He's crazy. That was his own family that said that. The leader said he is demon-possessed. Paul the Apostle was accused by Festus when he spoke of the resurrection. Your much learning hath made thee mad. You're nuts. Comes with the territory. Now, a word about criticism before we go on. Criticism can be constructive as well as destructive. It can be constructive. I have found that depending on the source and the nature of the criticism and how I receive it, it can be one of God's finest shaping tools in my life. Because you know what? We all have blind spots. And we all need to be honed. And sometimes it takes sandpaper to hone us a little bit. Especially those that are close to you, that you're accountable with. The Bible talks about he that hardens his neck versus the person who is open to reproof. It can change you. It can be good for you. If you handle it correctly. Now, the wrong way to handle it is to get automatically bitter and put up a wall and be defensive and say, Who are you to judge me? The other way to wrongfully handle it is to believe in the peace at any price policy. Well, I'll just do whatever it takes to make you happy. You'll be frustrated. You have to determine the nature of the criticism, who is giving it to you, what it is based on, and the accountability of other people that you have around you, and the accountability of the Scripture. You know, if it's for you, receive it. If it's not for you, you know, listen, there are people that just like to look for dumping grounds. They love to just dump. They're looking for anybody who would be foolish enough to let them just dump their garbage on. Even Jesus wouldn't let that happen. When they said, you cast out demons because you're demon-possessed. Jesus knew it was stupid logic. And he just, he said, look, he called it what it was. It's blasphemy. And he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? And he said, if, if I'm doing it by the power of the devils, how do, you, how do your children do it? How do you do it? Knowing that they were much more wicked. In fact, Jesus was perfect, and he was drawing an analogy against them. Numbers chapter 17 is a short chapter, and we have just enough time to get through it. God confirms the priesthood of Aaron, establishes the fact that he is the high priest, and he does it by resurrection. It's an interesting, it's an odd story, actually, about a rod that budded, dry sticks that brought forth life. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Get from them a rod from each of their father's house. 
all the leaders according to their children's or their father's houses, twelve rods, write each man's name on the rod. You shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. Now Korah died, 250 died, several thousand died. But there still could be resentment among the children of Israel. So God kind of wants to establish once and for all who the priesthood is to go to. So there's no more of this complaint. Verse 5, it shall be the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece, each leader according to their father's house, twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. It came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron, the house of Levi, had sprouted and put forth buds. And produced blossoms and yielded ripe fruit. This is life out of death. These are dead sticks. But out of death, God brings blossoms, buds, and fruit. Almonds grow on this thing. Put forth buds that had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. In that part of the world, the almond tree is the first tree to bud in the spring. Also, in the holy place, out front of the Holy of Holies, there was that menorah, that seven-branched candlestick, and there were almond knobs on it. And so, that was for the priesthood to attend to. By having the rod of Aaron produce almonds and all of the blossoms would remind them of the priestly duties that it was to be given to Aaron and to his sons forever. But I love it because it was out of death, the resurrection out of a dead stick, life came forth, was the proof that Aaron was the priest. I bring that up because Jesus is our great high priest, but Hebrews says, not after the order of Levi. In fact, the writer says, if Jesus were alive today, he wouldn't be a priest. But he has a different line, the line of Melchizedek. But just as Jesus is the first fruits to rise from the dead... He proves his priesthood for us by the resurrection. So Jesus is risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and today is your great high priest. Is that relevant for you? You betcha. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now, making intercession for you. You say, what does that mean to me? It means that, as the Bible says, you should come boldly to receive grace to help in time of need. Do you do that? Tonight, are you weary? Go to him. Do you feel like life is sort of stale and insipid for you? Go to that great high priest. Do you feel like you're lonely? Go to him. He's there. Go with boldness. You have a high priest who's been proven, who has proved his high priesthood by his resurrection, and he's waiting to hear from you. Go boldly and receive what you need. Then Moses brought all the rods from before the Lord to the children of Israel, and they, lo and they looked, and each man took his rod. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back from before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. So there are still some more of them out there perhaps. Now Hebrews tells us that in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple later on, they put three things. They put the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the law. Then they put Aaron's rod that budded 
and they put a jar of manna. One was to speak of the resurrection. One was to speak of the law that God gave to Moses. The other spoke of God's provision in the wilderness. And it was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, where is the Ark of the Covenant today? We don't know. Every now and then, people will come forward and say, I found the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones would be the latest, of course. No, but people have actually written articles that they found the Ark of the Covenant. i I, got to say, that would be like the most awesome find in history. To find the Ark of the Covenant with the two tablets of the law, a jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, obviously preserved through the centuries, miraculously by God. What a great find that would be. And yet... I think it's good that it hasn't been found. I think that God has probably tucked it away so that people can't find it. Now, I have a hunch as to where it is. It doesn't mean I'm going to buy a hat and a whip and go for it. But I have a hunch that I know where it is. Now, one of the reasons I think it's good that it's not found is that you'd have churches fighting one another and the Jewish community fighting the Christian community and the Christian community fighting the Jewish community as to who has the right to display it. And if they found it, I think that uh, they would abuse People would worship it. You know, they find a cloth, the Shroud of Turin, that has been proven not to be the burial cloth of Jesus. And yet people still worship it. So they find the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure outside the site where it's displayed, you know, people would sell little tablets of stone and little arcs and they would probably sell pieces of wood saying this is part of the original rod of Aaron that budded and it perpetuates itself through history and there's miraculous power in it like they said with the cross people would worship it and abuse it and so I think God has just preserved people from it Thus did Moses, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. The children of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? Now, the next chapter is related to chapter 17. God's going to answer the question. Basically, let let me give you a synopsis. Chapter 18 answers this question. Are we all going to die? God says, No, you won't all die. If you keep the priesthood the way I intended it, No worries. No problem. You keep transgressing it, and my wrath will be upon you. But you won't all die. Let Aaron do his thing. So God now reestablishes the priesthood in light of the account of the rebellion in the previous chapters. Let's read a couple verses because we have eight minutes. And the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. You and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. Also bring with you your brethren of the tribe of Levi, the father, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. Verse 5. You shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary, the duties of the altar, that there be, may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. So here's the solution. I have a priesthood. Don't mess with it. It's the family of Aaron. This is what I've chosen. Don't mess with my choice. Everything's going to be fine. Now, in verses 8 through 20, God tells them that the priesthood needs to be remunerated for their services. They have no land inheritance in Israel. 
so they're to be taken care of. Verse 8, the Lord spoke to Aaron, Here I myself have also given you charge of my heave offerings. All the holy gifts of the children of Israel I have given them as a portion to you and your sons as an ordinance forever. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from fire. Every offering of theirs, the grain offering, every sin offering, every trespass offering which they render to me shall be most holy for you and your sons. You see, there was no land for them once they got over at the Jordan River. Issachar had a place. Judah had a place. All of the tribes had their places of support. They could grow crops and so forth. Levi had no inheritance. And God is saying, I'm going to take care of you through the people and their tithes. So when they bring you grain offerings, sin offerings, uh, trespass offerings, you get a portion of it to take home and have a great feast. So you're going to be well taken care of. Now look in verse 19. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? God says, I'm your inheritance. What am I going to get? Me? It's all you need. What is a covenant of salt? Well, salt is seen in those cultures as something that is imperishable because it stops the corruption of meat and uh, it's seen as something imperishable. Therefore, this is an imperishable covenant. I'm not changing my mind and giving the priesthood to other people. It's a covenant of salt. It is to be permanent. Then in verses 25 through 32, interesting, the Levites were not only to receive tithes, they were to tithe. They had to give a tenth of what was given to them. So it is for anybody in the ministry. The first check I write every month, every two weeks, the first check I write is to do the Lord's work. There's no negotiation with it. It's the first check. Well, what if you have bills for this? Hey, that's out of the leftovers. But that's the Lord's, at least that. It's the first check that goes. So they were also to do that. Now Numbers 19. Hey, we got five minutes, no problem continues to answer the question back in chapter 17, verse 13. They had seen the judgments of God, and so they asked, Whoever even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die, shall we all utterly die? He's continuing to fortify the answer to that question. And now in chapter 19, is the ritual of ceremonial cleansing for those who have been ritually defiled. It's a strange chapter. You think chapter 17 is strange. This beats it. They were to take the ashes of a red-colored heifer that had been totally consumed, and they were to take those ashes and mingle it in water and sprinkle it on those who had become defiled so that the curse would be removed. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring to you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, on which a yoke has never come. Now, according to tradition, the red heifer had to be what they called, quote, perfect in redness, close quote. The rabbi said, perfect in redness. That is, even if it had only a few whiter black hairs, it was rejected. The... Um, Horns and the hoofs even had a red hue to them, uh, the writings tell us. It could have no defect. It could not have plowed. It could not have had a harness on its back. 
uh, it had to be at least three years of age uh, before it was worthy to be um, uh, slaughtered for a sacrifice. And they would take the red heifer to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, called the Mount of Anointment. The priest would be there and would slaughter the red heifer. He would take hyssop and facing the temple seven times, he would sprinkle toward the temple. Then large amounts of wood were taken to the place where the red heifer was killed and its blood drained. A fire started. They started a fire on the wood. They placed the red heifer on it till it was totally consumed. On the fire, they put a bundle of wood, hyssop and cedar, wrapped with a scarlet cord. The scarlet had to be dyed by a certain kind of a snail that had that purple dye in it. And they placed it on the fire. It was totally consumed. When there were just ashes left, they took fresh spring water. They put some of the ashes into the water. And they used it to sprinkle a person who had been defiled. And they also used it to cleanse the priesthood. You couldn't serve unless you had been cleansed in this manner. So you'd be sprinkled and there'd be the ashes of the red heifer in the water where you'd be sprinkled. Now let's say you um, had somebody in your family die. And you were there. You watched them die. You touched the dead body. Well, that means you're defiled. The only way for you to be cleansed is to be sprinkled with the water that had the ashes of the red heifer in it. On the third day and on the seventh day, you were sprinkled. And then on the seventh day after the second sprinkling, you would immerse completely in water, the mikvah, like a baptism. You'd get up, dry off, and at sunset, you were able to worship once again. According to the rabbis over in Jerusalem, at the Temple Institute, they say, quote, the experience of passing through these stages of preparation had a profound effect upon the soul. The impure was able to disconnect himself from the false world of death and realign himself with the source of universal life force. They mean by that the temple, the place to which the only pure can enter. Now, here's something interesting. According to tradition, according to tradition, Every time they ran out of ashes, they would burn another red heifer. But they would always take ashes from the first red heifer and mingle it with the new ashes so that you have the original ashes, so to speak, in the mix, even as it goes down. It sort of had to be, you know, succession of the ashes, so to speak. That was their tradition for the cleansing of the priesthood. Now, over in Israel today, there's a problem. You've got a group of people, I don't know if you know this or not, but you have a group of rabbis with the intention of rebuilding the Jewish temple where the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim shrine, sits. They call themselves the Temple Institute. If you go to Israel with us, we'll introduce you to some of these rabbis. They'll show you the plans of the temple. They'll show you the crown of the high priest, the garments of the priesthood. They'll show you some of the articles that, were, that they plan to use in this temple. And there is now a yeshiva training young men to be the priests. But they have a problem, the red heifer. They think they have found somebody in Oklahoma who can raise the strain of heifer that would be, according to their tradition, the strain that would be qualified to be the red heifer. But what about the original ashes? And so they're, you know, they're pulling their beards out, trying to <laughs> figure where the ashes are. Now there's a guy in Texas who claims he knows where the original uh, ashes of the red heifer are found. Original meaning at least from the time when the temple sacrifices stopped in 70 AD. And he says there's a cave out by Qumran. 
down by the Dead Sea where the um, Essenes used to live. And that underneath the floor are, in a jar, kept the ashes of the ancient red heifer. And he's trying to get money in the United States to have this archaeological dig. It's his way to get money for whatever reason. However, there is a guy in Israel named Asher Kaufman, an archaeologist who's written numerous articles on the temple, the reconstruction of the temple, and he believes that he knows he has the ancient documents to prove it. That he knows today a place where you could dig and you would find where the priests preserved the ashes of the red heifer, heifer on the Mount of Olives where the red heifer was killed and burned. And according to the ancient records, that's where they would keep them. He believes that they're there. The problem is there is a Greek Orthodox church over that site. And he believes just in the cistern or below that cistern, if you dig, that you'd find them. He thinks they're in the cistern. The bishop of that church will not allow anyone to go down into that cistern. Just like the Muslims won't allow anybody to dig underneath the Temple Mount. But he thinks that if you were to dig, you'd find the ashes of the red heifer. So there's a search uh, just in case they rebuild the temple. All right, we have time to pray and to go home. But we finished all the way to chapter 19. Say, Abby, you didn't finish it. Well, I'll let you do that this week on your own. We'll pick up chapter 20 next week. But God calls each of us to service, and God will enable you with the calling He gives you. You're not all called to be Aaron's or Moses or Levites, but you are called as God's chosen people to minister to one another with the gifts that God has given you. Discover those gifts. You say, how do I do it? Read over Romans 12, the first half of the chapter. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Have you done that? Have you said, God, here is my life. All of my plans I am willing to to abdicate over to your control. You are in charge. What do you want me to do? My plans for the future, my plans for where I'm going to go to school, my plans for my career, my plans of my future home. I, Lord, I, I just they're, I, they're yours. Do with me what you want. Here's my body. Let it become your instrument. Hey, you want excitement in life? You want life to be a sheer blast? An adventure? Live it by faith. Be an instrument of God. Imagine if you approach every situation. You're at the store. You're at work. And you say, okay, God, I wonder, is this a setup? I wonder if you'd use me right here. I wonder if there's somebody you'd use me to share the gospel with, maybe change their life. How could I be used in this situation? If you approached everything like that, man, how exciting every day would become. Father, we pray that would be the way we would live every day, open to the movement of your Spirit in our lives. Discovering our place. Seeing you unfold your will in our lives. Father, we surrender our lives to you tonight. Deliver us, Father, from that sin of an ungrateful, unthankful heart lest we be complaining against where you have put us. We pray, Father, that right where we are, we would look for ways to be used by you 
and for ways that this situation that we find ourselves in would mature us into the image of Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.